Hello, this is Ryan Hendrickson. I'm the Dean of the Graduate School at Eastern Illinois University, and it is September 21st. Uh, I am sitting here with Dr. Britta Nathan, and uh, I think this is going to be a wonderful podcast. Uh, just to remind everybody, this is our third podcast of EIU Innovate, where we focus in on graduate faculty at Eastern Illinois University who are doing wonderful things. And uh, when I started this podcast, I thought to myself, well, who would be some wonderful faculty members to bring in? And immediately I thought, Brett Nathan, I've got to get him on the show. So again, this is our third podcast. And as I said, we're focusing on faculty members who are making a really huge, profound difference in uh, providing opportunities for students, graduate students and all students um, experiences here at EIU. Dr. Nathan is, uh, I'm so excited to have him. He is a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences. He is also the assistant chair of this program and he also serves as the coordinator of the graduate program. He is, uh, as my other guests have been, he is a prolific scholar. My count might be off a little bit, but I've counted at least 38 different graduate students that he has at least formally mentored, uh, which means serving on theses and um, providing publication opportunities. He has somewhere around 44 publications, 28 different abstracts of his have been published, and he's also received a number of um, grants, both external to Eastern but internal as well. One of those grants was from the National Institute of Health, NIH, which is a very, very competitive. So I am very excited and pleased to have him with us today, and I look forward to sharing some of his ideas with you. Dr. Nathan, welcome to EIU Innovate. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. I'll call you Brito also because you're my friend. So Brito, uh, tell me... Tell us, listeners, how long have you been at EIU? And uh, just tell us a little bit about your professional trajectory as you've started at EIU and stayed here for so many years. So, um, actually, I'll start a little bit farther behind. Um, I came to the United States um, in 1989 to do my Ph.D. In, at the University of Kansas. And um, um, after finishing my PhD work in uh, neurobiology or brain science, and then I went on uh, to University of California, San Francisco, uh, at San Francisco General Hospital at Gladstone Institute. I did my postdoctoral training. Uh, then after that, I came to um, Charleston um, because Charleston looked very similar to San Francisco. There's I was not just much thinking di- that, right? <laughs> not much different at all. I mean, I love this place, so I came here. And man, that's about now 22 years <laughs> I've been here as a professor. It feels like just a few days. Yeah. It's yeah. been fantastic. Well, you've had a wonderful career here. And um, so much of your publications, as well as your sort of graduate mentoring activities, have centered around your research on Alzheimer's, which is an absolutely terrible disease and affects so many people and so many families. So I thought maybe we could start off by you telling us a little bit about your research and maybe if you could shape this uh, discussion too around Alzheimer's and its impact and then maybe how your research is fitting into addressing this problem. Yes, you're right. Probably one of the most dreadful memory-robbing diseases is Alzheimer's disease. 
uh, it takes away the complete human being out of the people who are uh, afflicted by this disease. Um, it robs the qualities like memory, reasoning, language, and, and, and finally the whole uh, dignity of being a human being. Um, the statistics of Alzheimer's is just alarming. Uh, right now, over 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's disease, and uh, this number is going to just simply skyrocket to as many as 16 million Americans uh, by the middle of this century. The sad part is there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease. The current treatments are just simply aimed at uh, slowing the progression of the disease, just treating the symptoms. That's all we got right now. Um, the emotional and the financial burden uh, because of this evil disease is so much that it is important that we develop uh, soon uh, novel therapeutics uh, to prevent or either to slow uh, the Alzheimer's disease progression. Um, just I thought that I can introduce a little bit about the disease. There are two types of uh, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, they are completely two different beasts. Uh, people don't, many of them don't know that they clump them together as Alzheimer's disease. One is called the yearly onset. Um, the definition being um, if a person uh, has symptoms of Alzheimer's disease before 65 years, it is considered as yearly onset disease. Uh, the second one is called the late onset if the symptoms happen uh, after 65. I just wanted to move that timeline 65 because I'm getting closer to that, you mm -hmm. know, yeah, to right. 70 or 80, you know, but that doesn't work that way. No. Um, there, um, they, they are so different in their symptoms different in the inheritance pattern, they should be considered as two different diseases. Uh, the yearly onset, for example, it's the minor form. It's only 5% of all Alzheimer's disease cases are yearly onset, uh, relatively less common type. Um, we know the genes. There are two to three genes uh, mutation that lead to the yearly onset Alzheimer's disease. Uh, obviously, it is hereditary in nature because it is genetic and um, uh, many family know if they have yearly onset because of the genes involved in there. It is also called familial Alzheimer's disease because of the inheritance pattern. But the most important Alzheimer's disease is the late onset Alzheimer's disease because it is about 95% uh, of all Alzheimer's cases are late onset. That means it would happen, symptoms shows up after 65 years. Uh, it is sporadic, uh, meaning it doesn't follow any specific inheritance patterns. Uh, scientists believe that it is due to complex combination of genes, environmental factors, lifestyle, among others. We really don't know what causes the late onset Alzheimer's disease. Uh, because, because we don't know still uh, much about what causes Alzheimer's disease, there are many different hypotheses, many different models being proposed, what causes Alzheimer's disease and all that. My specific research um, uh, spins around a central hypothesis, and that is Alzheimer's disease is simply due to failed nerve regeneration and repair in the aging brain. As we age, every part of the body, as we know, including the brain, succumbs to age-related degeneration. In some individuals, the brain continues to moderately repair and regenerate. Um, you see a lot of older uh, citizens out there who are smarter doing their things and they're all active. I saw a lady out there who was doing crossword puzzle, probably 85, 90 year old, and she can, 
cheek and give me a run for my money. Yeah, we're going to come back to crossword puzzles in a minute. I, <laughs> I, know, I know people talk a lot about this. But you're talking about nerve uh, regeneration. That's right. And your research um, focuses on that aspect. And, and your hypothesis then is that um, we have to find ways to better regenerate the nerves that are firing in the brain in to the keep brain. it functional, right? That's exactly that's exactly right. So when brain is going through aging, it is remodeling. When it is remodeling, it can do two things. One, it can remodel and reach a state where it will continue to function. Second, it may not remodel very well, it may not repair very well, then it is going down the down the slope and that's where Alzheimer's comes in. And that's the hypothesis which I believe in and that's what I have been studying for the last so many years. And then you work a lot with mice, correctly, mm -hmm. to help test this hypothesis. That so tell us how you go about doing this and I guess also how you engage your graduate students in this process when you're doing your research. Right. The way I try to approach um, this particular major problem is that I wanted to study at different level. The easiest way to study a molecular process, a biological process, is by growing brain cells, otherwise known as neurons, on plastic plates. And so we grow them in the plastic plates, then we can test all the different molecules which can make them to grow better, make connections better. And so it's an easy way to test, but it can be artificial. Okay, so Bredo, we have lots of listeners here. How do you grow a neuron? Uh, <laughs> that is um, basically what you do is you collect the neurons uh, from either um, the animal brain like the mice what I use and that I do all the time we also have cultures which are cancerous neuronal culture which can continuously grow now you grow them on a plastic plate containing uh, essentially like a like a soup like a mineral soup which which they need for growing it, it's, it can be magic, but it's basically sugar and other nutrients which can keep them alive. Mm -hmm. And we grow them in an incubator at the proper body temperature, which is 37 degrees, yeah. Okay. And uh, so, and then the graduate students part, because I know you, you publish with graduate students and you win all these kinds of awards with graduate students. How do you incorporate them into this body of your scholarship? Right. Almost all the research in my lab are performed by undergraduate and graduate students in the lab. Yeah, a project like this, using cell culture, neuronal culture, it's easy for undergraduate and the graduate students to learn. So they can come in, very quickly learn how to grow these uh, neurons on the plastic plate. It looks difficult, but it is not. It is protocol driven. So they grow and they can test different molecules on, on that. That's one thing they can do. Then once we get some results, those results are, we can generate a lot, but it would be better to test on an animal because an animal is way more complicated, way more complicated than uh, a cell culture paradigm where you can adjust things. So we test them on mice. That's where you are saying we use mice which are uh, normal mice and genetically engineered mice. We can put in the genes what we think causes Alzheimer's disease, or we can remove genes which we think is mutated, we can cause mutations. So we can essentially make a mouse which is human in mm. that particular gene, and then we can test nerve regeneration and repair, because that's what I am interested in. Fascinating stuff. Now, you mentioned crossword puzzles earlier, and I wanted to come back to this. So, you know, there's this research out there, our 
maybe it's the crossword puzzle industry. I don't know. But some people think that if you do crossword puzzles, that will help you avoid Alzheimer's later in life. Do you have any thoughts on that general hypothesis? Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to go out and say for a crossword puzzle, but what, what it is is simply, Ryan, it's just like any part of your body, you use it or lose it. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to use your uh, muscle, it goes away. And uh, aging is, is working against you. You know, it's trying to get your muscles off, your brain off, whatever body parts, you know, it's taking away the function. You're trying to say, well, I'm using it, leave it alone for some little bit longer. It's not going to be eternal, but okay. it is going to be. The brain is uh, another um, meat, another another fun, another organ which tries to go away as you age, as it tries to wane away. And if you keep on keeping it, doing the work, what you have to do, and then it'll uh, it'll 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 stay for a little longer. If not, it'll go away. So crossword puzzle or anything uh, which makes the brain to work. Um, is important. But let me tell you this. In my reading, the most important trigger for Alzheimer's disease is retirement. Oh, we <laughs> got to keep working then. That's, that's correct. Once a person retires, the chances of getting Alzheimer's is high. And do you know why? You know your why. brain stops working. Maybe, well, huh? you, you don't you don't want to get up in the morning and you don't want to do things. In it. But then there are lots of retirees out there who will still, I see them in the gym, they get up at 5.30, they are all active, they are busy, they are working, doing their things, and they say they, are, they have other things to do today, and they are reading, reading, reading is so important, yeah. uh, reading and being involved. Uh, many, many countries out there have um, continuing education for adults, and because they strongly feel that is important, learning a new skill. So it's not only crossword puzzle, but anything to keep the brain active. Okay, important. so let's also talk about exercise. Mm -hmm. I know there's, I'm always trying to find reasons to justify exercising because I like to exercise. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, I've got to find all these excuses to make sure I get my exercise in. And uh, what's the, uh, so you, you got this hypothesis about nerve regeneration, but other people might argue, well, the most important thing for us is, is to go out there and make sure we get a little swim in every day or a little run in every day or ride the bike or a walk. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now let's think about this. Um, the brain is the number one organ using most of the blood pumped from our heart. It uses 20, 30% of the oxygen which we consume. But think about it, the brain is about two, two and a half pounds. As compared to my body weight, I mean, I don't know, 300 pounds. No, you're and, not 300 pounds. And, and mm -hmm. you know, a couple, Half couple, that, of, maybe. couple of pounds of body organ is using about 30% of oxygen consumed, 40% of sugar consumed. It's, it's, it's like a big powerhouse. Now, if the blood doesn't pump to your brain, obviously, it's not going to work very well. So a person who doesn't do any exercise, um, the blood pressure is low, the heart is not beating properly, and then also you have to work against your gravity, right? It's going up. The blood is going up. It's not going down. It's against the gravity to the brain, from the heart from here to the, to the brain. So you need to pump. Without exercise, 
atherosclerosis, heart disease, plaque formation happens, particularly in the aortal arch, in the curve of the heart, and, and the carotid arteries, which are running right up to the neck, and the brain doesn't get enough blood. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it will cause a problem for the brain to function. That's pretty straightforward to me. Yeah, pretty compelling evidence. What do you think then uh, about, there's other research on on alcohol consumption. Mm -hmm. We probably have some wine consumers out there in our audience. Uh, What do you think about this research? Is it, uh, I've seen both directions. Some say, you know, don't have anything to drink ever. And others say, you know, always one to two drinks might be useful. I mean, what do you have any? Th- I know this is a little bit beyond your research, but do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I have. I have read uh, uh, quite a bit about this because I get asked when I give a seminar. Uh, it seems like human beings love to, <laughs> even though they ask this question, but they want really an answer. Yes, you can drink <laughs> your guts out. I mean, you know? <laughs> but um, the real the real truth behind that is um, everything in moderation is okay. Um, a lot of these studies came out of. Uh, particular specific gene pools like and you know studies coming from um, uh, from uh, Italy uh, where they are Europe some countries where they drink uh, wine as, as a just like every day they drink and but then you have to understand there's a different gene pool we all have different set of genes what works for somebody out there may not work for us you know mm-hmm. I don't know whatever is your lineage and uh, what if we go out and say to a person, yeah, you can drink wine, but then you have already a moderate level of cirrhosis uh, in the liver. Uh, the liver is going to give up way before the brain is going to give up. And so you got to be extremely cautious about uh, what we tell people. So can Every- you have alcohol in moderation? Maybe yes, if you are. But um, would it cause harm to other organs? Probably so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you've published uh, a lot of research. Do any of your publications stand out as something you know you're really proud of? You're really happy about, and uh, you feel like you made a contribution to the scholarship? I mean, certainly all of them. But is there one that stands out? That's right. All my babies. So you're yeah. asking me to pick one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question. Um, my all-time, all-time favorite paper, um, the research was based um, um, on estrogen and what I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But the most important thing for me is it was performed by undergraduate and graduate students at EIU. 100% of the work was done at EIU, and I'm very proud about that. Also, this research was funded completely by Eastern, it's a presidential research grant and the Council of Faculty Research Grant, which has been a boon for me for doing research, that has helped a lot. So in this project, what we did is we uh, we looked at a protein which is called APOE. This APOE is a flat fat transporting uh, protein. Uh, there are three forms of this APOE. Uh, it's called APOE2, APOE3, and APOE4. And we inherit this protein, so it depends on your parents what you got, whether you got APOE2 or APOE3 or APOE4. The most common is the APOE3. But what they found is APOE4. If we inherit APOE4, you get um, uh, many people get Alzheimer's disease when they inherit. It increases the risk. It also reduces the age at which one will get Alzheimer's. So it, in either way, it is very bad. And um, 
we showed in this paper that ApoE4 works along with estrogen in causing Alzheimer's disease. It's a negative interaction. Um, you may know this. Uh, Alzheimer's is more common in women than in men. Do you, do you know about no, this? No. It's, uh, it's 1.5 times more likely, uh, women are more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than men. So this was a recent effort because I know you just got this presidential research uh, grant, uh, you know, maybe three years ago, two to three years ago. So this is a recent one. I, th I thought you might talk about your uh, article you published in Science. I know that's a uh, the premier journal, national, well, world, across the world, but it you published once in science, correct? That's right. I published in science, and um, that that's where we were the first one to show that ApoE4 uh, causes the brain cells not to grow very well. So, so think about brain cells which are not growing very well in the presence of ApoE4. So, if you have ApoE4, they won't grow very well. So, they won't make uh, they won't make any uh, they won't make connections properly. It's very poor connection in the brain and then it is clear to see why individuals with ApoE4 will will end up in getting Alzheimer's disease. Um, and and that's what I published. That was the first paper I published on ApoE and showing ApoE4 causes uh, neuronal network degeneration and all that. And that's why it got published in Science and mm -hmm. it has been cited by uh, many paper uh, cited that particular article. Yeah. But my passion has been, uh, has changed a little bit towards uh, interaction of the female sex hormone estrogen and ApoE because of the higher incidence of yeah. Alzheimer's syndrome. So, Brito, just doing a little quick math here, you said you've been here about 22 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least by one count, you have 44 publications. Mm -hmm. So that means about at least two articles per year. Mm -hmm. So... When, I always like to ask the guest on EIU Innovate, when do you write? Uh, what's a good time of the day for you to be able to sit down and start composing? Um, any writer would say you would like to have an uninterrupted block of time, um, which is hard to get when you have teaching to do, service to do. Uh, that's a, I'm not saying this. those are problem those are enjoyable activities out there but to get this block of time it got to be evenings and weekends um, it's not uncommon um, I would get up on a Saturday and Sunday my usual wake-up time at six o'clock and nobody out there in my home is awake and I get there and man I can get about three hours before pancakes rolls in <laughs> and and it's not it's a good time to write it's it's impressive how much you can do in a solid block of time. Um, on the other hand, if I try to do something like that at work, um, there is always interruption, and then I keep reading the line back again and again and again. I'm not making progress yeah. in there. So that's the best time. And for the last 22 years, that's what I have used, uh, weekends and evenings okay. um, of uninterrupted time. Okay. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. and. I know, uh, so you've been the director of your graduate program in biological sciences mm -hmm. for, um, I think, your third year now? Or fourth? fourth? Third or fourth, fourth year? Fourth okay. year. And your graduate program has experienced considerable enrollment growth. 
And this is in part, I think, because there's things that are changing in your field. Uh, classically, your field has drawn a lot of students who are interested in going on to a PhD program. And your department has a tremendous record of publishing and mentoring with those students. But at the same time, I know there's different tracks now for students who want a master's degree in biology. So talk about that and tell us what how your program has evolved and to keep in line with the theme here of the podcast, how, how has it innovated? Right, right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this because in the past few years, the graduate program uh, has just not grown. It has nearly doubled. And that's a truly exciting chapter for uh, biological sciences at Eastern Illinois University. Um, I, would, I would attribute um, our impressive growth uh, to collaboration throughout Eastern. Um, first, we saw a need for a course-based um, non-thesis master's option as an alternative to the strong thesis option like you mentioned. Uh, the non-thesis option is designed to be flexible and is customized to specific needs of students seeking the advanced degree in biological sciences. Um, this allows the students to choose classes what they wanted to take to go to professional schools or to get a job, um, whatever they are, their dream is, and we are catering to that particular need high-quality courses are put in place. Um, we changed our website and uh, to, to clearly state uh, the different options we have, the thesis option, the internship option, and, and uh, the non-thesis um, um, non route, right. non route in here. And this helps uh, a lot for students to uh, see what we have. Previously, it was all hidden, and this is all better. Uh, also, the online application much, much portal. better to not be hidden, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and the online application uh, portal um, has been great. Students are doing that in the cell phone now, right in my office. They do some time and get the application done, which is great. Where are these students who do the non-thesis track? Where do they end up working after they complete the degree with your program? Oh, that's a that's a fantastic question out there. I have been monitoring that because I wanted to know what we are doing in here, are they helping? This last year was the first cohort. We had 25 students graduate out of this program. I keep record of all of that. They go to all kinds of professional school. We have three, do uh, three students went to uh, medical school, three or four went to PA school, chiropractor school, podiatry school, uh, optometry. Um, several went to PhD programs on scholarships. Um, some of them went to work for the DNR, the Department of Natural Resources. Um, it's, it's impressive to mm. me how you let the students to choose the classes what they want so they can go to where they want. For example, in biological sciences, we let them to take classes with, from the GIS, and that helps them. The, and and that helps them to go out there. And GIS and is the Geographic Information System. Thank you. And yeah. so they can go out there and DNR because that's a skill what they wanted to learn. And so restricting them, oh, you got to take only biology classes, is not helping them. So make it broad and make it easier and flexible for them. So they are highly benefited from this. And your graduate program, I know, has a lot of students from all over really the United States, but also the world. Mm -hmm. So if you have s students from Saudi Arabia oh. and 
maybe China and some other places, correct? Right. We, I counted about eight to nine international, you know, different country students are right now in our program. Um, not only international students, around the sta United States, we get students from, we, I admitted just yesterday, a student from Pennsylvania State. Mm -hmm. And um, students around the uh, around the country come to our program because it's a high quality program we offer, and it is flexible to suit their need. It's a fantastic program. I would invite our listeners, if you have an interest in biological sciences, to look at uh, the department's website, EIU's biological sciences website, because they have a number of really uh, engaging videos that talk a lot about the kind of experience a student would have here but also the tremendous amount of mentorship that exists in your graduate program. And, and not only look at that, they can email very easily. It is BP Nathan, which is blood pressure Nathan at EIU.edu. Blood pressure Nathan. Blood I like that. Yeah. Nathan. BP yeah. Nathan. Yeah. We are almost nearing the end of our uh, podcast here. So, Brito, what else do you want our listeners to know about you your uh, your graduate program, anything you'd like to share? Well, first of all, I wanted to thank you and, and Tom. And uh, what should I say? Um, I have been, I've been extremely fortunate enough to serve in this great institution for 21 years. Um, it has been a really fulfilling job, and I take it as a privilege and a, and a blessing, uh, definitely. For me, it has always been about the students and trying to give them the best learning experience they can get. Uh, it is great to work with young, fresh minds and then be able to see them evolve into leading scientists, doctors, or whatever they choose to be. Uh, this is just not a day job. This is my life's work. Brother, you've been a great guest. I knew you would be. Um, so to conclude EIU Innovate, I want to thank our listeners, and I do also want to thank Dr. Tom Grissom, who has been uh, the, the man behind the curtain on all of our podcasts here. We're, we are sitting here in Buzzard Hall right across from the dean's office, in Tom's office, and he has uh, helped me and helped all of these podcasts come to fruition. So I sincerely thank uh, Dr. Tom Grissom for his assistance. So thank you for listening. We have more to come, uh, so stay tuned, and um, let's keep on innovating here at EIU. Thank you.